that sound you were hearing in last week's episode yeah. was Barkley sitting behind me snoring. Okay, everybody, quiet, please. Much like our listeners. <laughs> it was just a little commentary on the Stop. show. Yeah. In four, three, two. The Awful Company presents a truly terrible podcast. Welcome to Nonsense Episode Number 5. I'm Jeff Parker. And I'm CJ Little. This is our take on the week's business tech and entertainment headlines. This time we'll look at Air Freight The Last Mile, The Doomsday Clock, Air Freight The Middle Mile, The Potential Roadkill from a One-Button Economy, and finally, we'll revisit a few of our previous topics for updates. But first, our headlines. Smartphone sales are down. I'm not surprised. They sold 1.2 billion smartphones wow. last year. That doesn't seem like down, doesn't it? I mean, everybody already has one. There's 8 billion of us, but apparently some four of years seems about right. Seems holding, about right. holding about four years? Yeah. Well, that was down. That was down quite a bit. It's the largest ever decline since 2013. That's amazing. In the final quarter of last year, because it's mostly a fourth quarter business, yep. because that's when the new models come out, yep. they sold a total of 300 million smartphones, which was... Uh, uh, an 18% year-over-year fall. I mean, it's still a lot of smartphones. It's a, it's lot, a lot of smartphones. smartphones. Are we just bored with the uh, lack of new features, or are the new I, features not as important to us? I think you've got this problem where they're becoming more durable. Oh, well, I don't know if that's a problem. Uh, not durable in the sense of, like, it's not dying, but, like, durable in the sense of, I don't really need the next thing. Like, that is that is the issue, I, I mean, think. I go that back to my, part of the my issue. iPhone 5 or 6 was great. Yeah. It was, like, a great phone. You didn't need the next one. Then you get the next one. You're like, oh, okay. Well, how, how did I ever live without yeah, this? Yeah, how did I live without this? Which sure. they've done a great job on. But even on like the 13, the biggest improvements were low light camera, better photography, which is awesome. But like, I don't know if a lot of people need that or benefit from it. Apple still declined uh, 15%, but they did better than the rest. They shipped uh, 72 million iPhones in the fourth quarter. It's a lot of phones. You know what a tractor beam is? I know what a tractor beam, like the concept of one. Have you seen it like on Star Trek? Is that what you... I'm not a Trekkie. I'm a Star Wars kid. Star Wars. Did Star Wars have... Uh, I don't think so. Tractor beams? No. Well, it's a beam that grabs something and pulls it toward you. Okay. And uh, scientists have created a working tractor beam. Now, we've had microscopic tractor beams before. This is a tractor beam where you can actually see with your naked eye... The object being and move things, yeah, a little piece of graphene cool. and glass, a little sliver. So like you can just feed and me Cheetos. I can just sit in the chair. That's coming. W Wally, I'm telling you, it's going to be a good, we, good world. The Wally future is not so fiction. bright. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to sit around, have ChatGPT tell me stories. But what I want to know is why do they call it a tractor beam? Yeah, I don't because it pulls things obviously, but why wouldn't they call it like a tow truck beam? That makes more sense. Doesn't, make, doesn't roll off the tongue no. nearly as well. Amazon is begging employees not to leak corporate secrets on ChatGPT. That L sounds problematic. Lawyer told workers that they'd already seen instances of text generated by ChatGPT that closely resemble internal company data. I, what secrets does Amazon have that the rest of us can't? Probably a lot. Tape goes on the outside of the box? <laughs> I don't know. What else are they... <laughs> What are they sitting on? I don't have any idea. I think I, I had no idea the tape does go on the outside of the box now that I think about it. Well, that's that's pretty trade good. secret. Big trade secret. Can something as simple as a cup of coffee with milk have an anti-inflammatory effect in humans? I hope so, because if so, I should be half the size. I this am. is from the Department Drink of Wishful of Thinking. Yeah. But uh, scientists in Copenhagen, University of Copenhagen, think that's true. They think that uh, from a new study, they've seen uh, that proteins and antioxidants combined doubles the anti-inflammatory properties in immune cells. It's very convenient when the things they find line up with what I eat. Isn't that great? Like uh, wine, red meat, barbecue, Researchers coffee. hope to be able to study health effects on humans. I don't think they're going to have trouble finding subjects. No, not at all. I think they're going to get people Most to sign up. Newly discovered asteroid makes one of the closest approaches to Earth. The small near-Earth asteroid, called 2023 BU, zipped over the southern tip of South America at 7.27 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday, 
about uh, 3,500 kilometers above the Earth's surface. We almost named our second kid that, 2023 BU. And why BU? What is 2023, the, what is the BU I'm sure for? it means something important. Some nerds going to Because the 2023 in. just sounds like the year. You should use your powers of deduction for good. <laughs> well. How big was this rock? It's about, uh, they, they're guessing, because they, they didn't go up sure. and measure it. That's, they should have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 3.5 to 8.5 meters. So that's like... A mile in the metric system. Yes, or your conversion is perfect. Bottom mile, spot on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I do everything in freedom units. If you could please give me do all this you? in freedom units. Yeah. I'll do what I can. I'll do, give yeah. it to you in Kelvin. <laughs> That'd be even worse. <laughs> there are some 18,000 uh, near-Earth objects, which are comets and asteroids mostly, that NASA tracks. They discover about 40 new ones every week. One of those is going to give us a bad day. Reducing total calories may be a for- more effective for weight loss than intermittent fasting. I mean, isn't this just duh? Yeah, like, really. This like, is from the Department of, of Super Obvious really? Things. But there were a lot of people who believed that if they spaced out their meals in some magical way, they could continue eating as many calories and somehow they'd lose weight. I mean, if of it course, helps that you didn't get work. Less calories that would work, but right? that's not what people were doing. Yeah, if you just if every other day you go to hometown buffet and eat your face off, <laughs> that's not really intermittent <laughs> fasting. They that's did, just you not getting banned from the hometown buffet. They studied the records of 550 adults who were followed for six years, and uh, the interval time from the first to the last meal was not associated with weight change. Altered speech may be the first sign that you have Parkinson's disease. So how do you know that? How do you detect that? Well, humans can't detect it that well. Okay. Uh, you want to detect it as early as possible. That matters. We can't cure Parkinson's, but we, but we can, to some degree, control it. And so you want to find out as early as possible. The, this is going to shock you on this show that we're going to mention this. AI can detect it. And AI just, can detect it literally in seconds. We're just becoming a really poor AI show. Exactly. Pretty much. I'm having a hard time cleaning out this drain in my kitchen sink. AI. <laughs> That's just the answer for everything. That's why I'm going to throw out stuff now. This story almost sounds biblical, like the ocean's t- turning red. Cats and dogs living yeah, together. Exactly. Yeah. A couple million people saw in San Diego the oceans as they turned pink. That's not good. Uh, it turns out it's fairly harmless. You see San Diego researchers injected non-toxic pink dye into the water. Did they tell anybody? Have you seen Ghostbusters 2 with Vigo? <laughs> okay. Pink slime That's in the subway. This is not good. They're trying to study how fresh water from inland areas such as rivers and estuaries interact with the surf zone when it flows in the ocean. They're actually going to do it two, two more times. If you want to see it, we can go down. I mean, I do want to see it, but I'd like to, know yeah. what, I'd like to have more clarity of what happens to the pink water. 7,600 fake nursing diplomas were sold in a scheme, the U.S. says. More than two dozen people have been charged in connection with a scheme in which fake nursing diplomas were sold to buyers who then used their credentials to obtain nursing licenses and jobs in the healthcare industry across the country. I feel like I've been treated by at least one of these nurses. It reminds me of the old joke uh, where the doctor's running after the nurse and he said, I said prick is boil. Wow. <laughs> Jeff will be here all week. <laughs> Try the veal. Okay, next you're going to take a look at Air Freight, the last mile. I'm going to do my best. Hit the button. Hit the button. I was thinking we would try something a little different on this episode. Yeah. And explore two different yet related ideas across two segments. Excellent. What you got? This is about uh, uh, sort of the last mile of air freight delivery. So, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, this is cool. You've alluded to this on one of our previous episodes. Yeah. In 2020, the FAA selected 10 different companies to participate in a certification program for drone delivery, right? Last mile drone delivery. Right. So this included a bunch of companies, Zipline, Wingcopter, Percepto, and of course, our good friends... At Amazon. Got to be. This was pretty interesting. I looked briefly at the folks that participated, and you had all sorts of different drones, right? Anywhere from like 5 to 90 pounds. 
Some had a top max cruise speed of 70 knots, which is kind of insane. Amateur um, drones can fly 100 miles an hour. Yeah, right. That's your, yeah, yeah. your cap yeah. is 100 miles an hour. So these were, um, you know, intended to be autonomous. In most cases, there's a company called Percepto. These guys are interesting. They raised uh, over 70 million bucks to date. They just got approval recently for remote monitoring of power stations in Canada, which is kind of cool. That is cool. But that wasn't what really intrigued me. I was intrigued by what Amazon was doing with these, what they're calling Prime Air drone delivery. Yeah. And they launched this. They're uh, currently doing it. Yeah, they launched this late last year in two places, uh, Lockford, California and College Station, Texas. And they're using their MK27 Mark II drone. It's pretty small. It's about five and a half feet in diameter. It's a hexagon. Okay. Weighs about 80 pounds. Wow. Flies at 50 miles an hour. And it can fly up to about 12 kilometers round trip. Okay. Give or take. So not huge, but good place to start. You got to be close to a distribution center then to get your your stuff. It can take off vertically. And then it rotates into sort of like a forward position. All drones take off vertically. But then it rotates to a forward position and uses the edge of its hexagon as lift. Yeah. It's autonomous. It has static and dynamic object detection. So like vehicles, chimneys, trees, shit like that. Well, hopefully it's not flying low enough to hit a vehicle. Well, it flies pretty low. And then how, it's low got, how low to the ground do they come? I want to say it's around 400 feet is the area that They're that not going to hit a vehicle in. at 400 feet. But it's got to drop package off. Yeah. It's got to get down low. So they Amazon calls them, I love this term, independently safe is the term they use. Yeah. They're independently safe. So There's collision detection of some sort. Yeah, but more than that, it if it sees a heat signature below the drone, it won't drop the package. So it won't drop on top of a dog. That's the the theory. I'm really curious what the name of my, that... My dog would be right under that drone. Well, exactly, which is why I want to know what the name of the, that routine is in their code. Like, is it C. Wiley E. Coyote, no drop? <laughs> like Acme drop zone? That's exactly right. Because that's so, really what it sounds like to me. There's only, a, in the current trial, there's a limited set of packages, or, sorry, of products you can get because the package has to be less than five pounds. Has, so to drop, cur- has to drop 12 feet? And then it drops it from 12 feet, which I didn't appreciate, which is kind of cool that it just all packages delivered to my house get dropped from at least six drop feet. six feet yeah 100 percent. yep because they come over the fence they come yeah. over the gate and they just heave them over and monitors and all sorts of things survive, survive that just fine wine glasses from the lakers don't not, survive not six so inches <laughs> yeah well they should probably put them in some kind of packaging why are the lakers sending you glasses if you're a season ticket holder they send you a little present at, for every glasses? year for glasses and it's wine glasses that say Lakers or oh, something on it. It's just a box of broken glass. glass. <laughs> that says Lakers yeah. on it? Yeah. Thanks. Nice. Nice Thanks for the shards. <laughs> okay, so check out the economics on this. This is yeah. what I thought you would really appreciate. What do you think Amazon currently spends to deliver a, a package through their third-party carrier networks? They've got their own logistics. Right. And they've got their third-party logistics, the UPS, USPS. Right. So give me both numbers, what you think they're paying in a range-ish per package, third-party Third party, if you're buying delivery like that in bulk, yep. and it's last mile delivery we're yeah. worried about, yeah, yep. a buck, two bucks. Okay. What do you think is their own, the cost of their own network? Probably more. So I, I was with you. I assumed it was sort of around the same. Apparently, according to some of their internal documents, they're spending like four and a half to five and a half bucks for delivery through a third party network. Wow. And about three and a half dollars in their own network. Right. Wow. So these Mark 27. Obviously, to, for their own network, they've taken the most cost effective deliveries. Yeah. Yeah, you'd well, you'd presume. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty good about that. On their uh, on these new drones cost uh, one hundred and forty six thousand dollars. They're not cheap. We um, just use them a lot. If you, you can, amortize if that. You can la- yes, exactly. You can lasso them. That would be great. Uh, what do you think their delivery cost is for twenty twenty two? Granted, I'm skewing this because it's small network, but what do you think their anticipated delivery cost is per per package for this trial? Well, it's got to be really high. It's yeah. got to be a thousand bucks or. 
something you know it's like 480 dollars. yeah so you sure. can order six dollars of sunscreen you're not amortizing yes. the cost across one year they expect that to decrease by north of 85 percent by I'm 2025 sure. I'm so sure. they think you know a target of like 60 ish dollars is where that is where that ends up will they be able to expand the range from six kilometers i mean so their next gen uh drone which is the mark 30 is supposed to be like 25 percent less noisy uh, it's supposed to fly in light rain. That's an issue with drones. No, yeah. dr- drones are loud. And then it, it's supposed to have increased increased range as well. And they're thinking that's out next year, 2024. But it's still like they're all designing these drones. Yeah. They're designing their own yeah, yeah. drones. That's remarkable. Yeah. They're, they've gone through, I want to say, like a dozen or more iterations okay. of just screwing around all different shit. You should you should um, look at the link that uh, is on the on on the episode. There's a bunch of really bizarre looking drones they've they've tested out. To get this to work, because it just flies over your house and poops out a package, and then now could it could it carry three or four packages? I think I'm assuming that's where they want to get, so you can because that a, seems more efficient, way more efficient. You would yeah. think, yeah. Anyway, that's uh, Prime Air. Uh, I think you've got uh, the Doomsday Clock coming up next. I am doing the Doomsday Clock coming up. More happy segments, folks. <laughs> I'm a smartwatch guy. Do you wear a smartwatch? I am. I'm wearing one right now. I was at a party and uh, a friend of a friend was there and he was showing off his watch and it was a $100,000 old watch. It was literally, he was saying it was worth $100,000. I think he overpaid. And I said to him, uh, so your watch tells time, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He didn't love that. No, he did not. He did not enjoy Uh, that. In 1947, a group of atomic scientists, including Albert Einstein, who had worked on the Manhattan Project to develop the world's first nuclear weapons during World War II, Yeah, created a different kind of timepiece. Yeah. The Doomsday Clock. I know about this. You do? I do. Is it something you follow? Well, no. Does it have like a Twitter account? What do you mean? It does have a website. Does it post a lot? It posts every year. Really? Well, yeah. I know it posts every, every year. Every January they post. Yeah. And we're just getting closer. They meet twice a just year. Splitting seconds at this They meet point. twice a year and then and they post once a year. How do you get on the committee to be on the Doomsday Clock? You got to be like a Nobel laureate. Mm, it's probably not going to make incredibly, that incredibly, incredibly uh, smart, thoughtful. Do you people. think we can get on there from this show? Let me just explain real quick for anyone who doesn't know. Okay. The Doomsday Clock is a clock that is symbolically showing how close the world is to, to ending, and midnight marks the theoretical point of annihilation. So uh, uh, threats could include political tensions, weapons, technology, climate change, pandemic, illness, anything like that. Asteroids, AI. Sure. Um, it's a Chicago-based nonprofit organization called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that updates the time annually based on information regarding catastrophic risks to the planet and humanity. Do they consider AI in that, too? Yeah, this year, I mean, they, AI this year move, they did. Did that move the clock forward? I don't think AI moved the clock forward as much as Russia did. Well, yeah, there's that. Every January, a board of scientists and other experts in nuclear technology and climate science, including 13 Nobel laureates, Discuss the world events and determine where to place the hands on the clock. More than 75 years ago, the clock started ticking at seven minutes to midnight. I'm assuming it's always gone down since then. Has it ever gone up? Oh, yeah, it's gone up. At one point, it was at 17 minutes to midnight. Huh. Uh, in 1991, as the Cold War ended, the United States and Soviet Union signed the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. So it substantially reduced both countries' nuclear weapons arsenals. So 17 minutes is as far back as it's ever been. Interesting. Last week, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the clock's hands to 90 seconds to midnight. The closest they've ever been. It's the first time they've moved the clock since 2020 when it was set at 100 seconds. That's 10%. Getting there. 
10%. I can do this math in my head. Thank you. Just did that right now on the fly, folks. This setting reflects the world in which Russia's invasion of Ukraine has revived fears of nuclear war. Other factors include climate change, biological threats such as COVID-19, and risks associated with disinformation, which I thought was really interesting that they call that out. How do you quantify that? Well, the whole thing. How do you quantify most of this stuff? Rachel Bronson, the bulletin's president, told the news conference in Washington, Russia's thinly veiled threats to use nuclear weapons remind the world that escalation of the conflict by accident, intention, or miscalculation is a terrible risk. The possibilities that the conflict could spin out of anyone's control remain high. So the doomsday clock is not perfect. The metaphorical clock uh, entirely missed the Cuban Missile Crisis simply because it began and was resolved entirely between the scientists' meetings. They couldn't, yeah, they so, can only meet once a year. So, so the, the probably the event that would have brought us closest to nuclear war, the clock entirely missed. Yeah, it's a very low-frequency update. There's a lot of pop culture around it. There's been songs written about it, including Iron Maiden's 1984 song, Two Minutes to Midnight. Can they meet more often than once a year? They meet twice a year, but they only update the clock once a year. Are the hands really heavy? Yes. Is that the problem? The doomsday clock has its detractors, too. Steven Pinker harshly criticized the doomsday clock as a political stunt. Alan Barash at Slate argues that putting humanity on a permanent blanket high alert isn't helpful when it comes to policy or science and criticized the bulletin for neither explaining nor attempting to quantify their methodology. Yeah, I mean, look. It's I, a metaphor. I, yeah, it's I just understand a that. metaphor. But I kind, of, I kind of appreciate that. Like, if you just tell people that you're constantly at DEFCON 1, then DEFCON 1 loses all of its importance. Well, obviously they don't. At one point, we pulled back to 17 minutes to midnight. What do you think? Is the doomsday clock useful or no? I think it has value for sure. In a 24 7, 365 news cycle that we live in now, a once a year update's not enough. I feel like a monthly or quarterly update would be reasonable. I feel like this is a VCR blinking 12. <laughs> That's what I feel like this is. It's No, it's blinking not quite 12. Not quite 12. No, no, it's blinking 12. 12 and someone comes over and like, fuck, I'll set the time on it. And they do. <laughs> and then by the time daylight savings times rolls around, you don't remember how to set it again. And it's wrong by an hour. Also, it's an odd thing that the, this this clock is constantly, it doesn't, pr- it doesn't progress. It doesn't move. Yeah, it doesn't, go, it doesn't move forward like a clock. Yeah, it's is, like, we're two minutes now, we're 17 minutes now, we're four minutes now, we're, it's moving all over the place. And just I'm going to write a strongly worded the letter to, to the Nobel laureates. I have the fix, I have the fix for, you the, have the, for fix. the doomsday timepiece. Oh, yes. listener, sit down, I think here this, it comes. I think this will solve the problem. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, uh, interchangeable uh, bands. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it needs. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's all that's we what, need. We need a new clock. Sure. Call Tim. Yeah. Have Tim get on this. We need different bands. On the doomsday clock. I think it's a big, big hit if you can get some interchangeable bands. I think that's what, that's definitely what it's missing. All right. Next, you're going to take a look at Air Freight, the middle mile. Hit the button. When, um, when I say Zeppelin, what do you think of? I think of dances in the seventh and eighth grade. Stairway to Heaven? Because seven Stairway to Heaven is seven plus minutes, and they would start it at two minutes before midnight when the dance was supposed to end at midnight, and they would let us go over by five, five minutes. Five minutes. Because it was one long song. One long song. That's pretty good. That's kind of I figured Stairway to Heaven yeah. is where you go. Do you think of anything else when I say Zeppelin? That's it. That's all I That's got. That's it. It's the only thing you got. Just nothing about balloons blowing up or anything. Just literally just the good song. The I think you'll appreciate this. Not what this segment is about. There uh, were several USS Los Angeleses that were built. What is that? Uh, it was a dirigible airship. The second one was built for the U.S. as a war reparation in 1922. What were we reparating? 
Uh, I think the first ones that were built for us, the the um, they were scuttled. They were scuttled by the crew. Okay. So they had to rebuild them after World War World War One. Why did we want these? What were we doing with them? We were using them in the Navy. So just for perspective, this thing in 1922 was 200 meters long. Yeah. And 28 meters in diameter. It displaced 78,000 cubic meters. Now what you're thinking about is the Hindenburg, which was LZ-129. That was in 1937. Okay. It, um, of course, burst into flames, crashing to the ground, killing 35 people. Not a very happy But it story. made like 10 trips yeah, yeah, yeah. to and, and from forth. Europe. Yep. Yeah, that yep. was pretty incredible. Uh, sorry, that airship was 25% longer and displaced two and a half times as much air. The Hindenburg. Yeah. Yeah. As the USS Los Angeles. Okay. So they're big. Giant. All right. Yeah. Now. But that doesn't seem like a lot of people it's carrying for, for uh, something no. that large. No. And this is where it gets interesting. This okay. Is, this is what I've learned. I don't mean to get ahead. What do you think about bringing back airships for moving cargo around the planet? How does that sound? Well, it seems like a very slow way to move cargo. So I read an excellent piece uh, from uh, Eli Dorado on Substack. And he makes an amazing case for bringing airships back. And he focused on where they could be the most effective. And I think this is something you're going to find super uh, interesting. I certainly did. So imagine something that's cheaper than air freight, say roughly 75% cheaper than air freight, but much faster than sending it on a boat. So if you're thinking about boat, you know, crossing over from Asia to the U.S., you're talking about several months. weeks. Yeah, months yeah. typically, but at least several weeks. Several weeks, and then it's going to be in the harbor waiting to be unpacked for a month. Airship, three days. Oh, really? Yeah. Hindenburg around, uh, from, from Europe H- to the U.S.? Was, yeah, it was less than how that. How far? Was how long? I don't know how many miles, but I want to say it was in the neighborhood of 70 hours. Wow, okay. I it's a couple that. days. Yeah. I mean, they don't move fast, but they don't stop moving. And they're quiet. Right? Relatively Which quiet. Which is lovely. Yeah. So, okay, so here's what Eli did. He looked at uh, pre-COVID data, so 2019, sort of just get rid of all of the noise from, from 2020 and later, and looked at the cost to ship a metric ton one kilometer, right? So that's the unit they use here. It's a, it's yeah. a metric ton kilometer. And in the U.S., uh, for a domestic ton kilometer, you're talking about 83 cents for air freight, okay. 11 cents for trucks, Yeah. so much less for trucks, and roughly two cents for water transportation. What about rail? Uh, rail was in there. I didn't I didn't. Rail's got to be super cheap. It was between, if I, if I remember correctly, it was between water and trucks. Okay. Uh, so internationally, though, this is about 50% cheaper. So you're talking about 40 cents for air freight and about one cent for water. That's okay. sort of like the market, roughly speaking. And not much rail across the ocean. Not a lot of rail across the ocean. They haven't, they haven't finished that sure. yet. They're working on it. There's about 260 billion revenue ton kilometers uh, that earned $106 billion in revenue in 2019, right? For okay. air freight. Sure. Just air freight. Uh, but air freight represented less than, and this, this stat blew my mind, air freight represented less than 1% of the total tonnage for import-export, but 39% of the value of import-export. Oh, wow, wow. So basically all the expensive shit gets flown. Right, right. Because right? you go on it here quick. Yeah, you want it here quick. It's Probably your expensive, MacBook Pro, your phone. Right, it's chips mostly. Yep. I mean, that's got to be the yep. most valuable thing we fly. Okay, so he digs into this a little deeper and just containerized maritime trade. So just shit that's in containers, right, yeah, going yeah. across the water is 13 trillion ton kilometers per year. Oh yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot, right? That is a lot of shit getting shipped back and forth. So his argument is that if you could capture, just like top line numbers here, if you could capture half of the maritime container trade and do it at 25% of the cost of air freight, you're looking at about $650 billion in annual revenue, right? Which would immediately make you the largest company by revenue in the world. Sure. If you could do that. Now, 
the question, of course, is how do you do this? Right. That's right. a lot. That's a lot of Zeppelins. Well, yeah. Boeing has estimated that uh, the entire global air freight market is about $106 billion. Okay. So you're now six times the current air freight market. Yeah. And uh, just to kind of give you perspective of how but big this But it's 3x the time, right? Uh, compared to air freight? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe arguably even, even a little more. Yeah. But I think for a lot of things, you're going from weeks or months into single digit days. That's where the opportunity is. Weeks right? or months because not if offsetting I'm, air freight. You're yeah. out, you're out, you're offsetting the maritime right. trade. Then you start getting into the actual airship design, and this is what's fascinating to me. This is really the the bit that that held my attention. Uh, airships follow the square cube law, right? So the the ratio between volume and surface area, and that means that and this is exactly what Eli wrote. I'm just stealing it from him. He says that means if your airship doesn't perform well, just double its size. Sure. Like that's literally what you do, right? Because <laughs> the lift will go up by a factor of eight, drag goes up by a factor of four, and the lift to drag ratio gets better. Of course. And if that doesn't work, Make double it bigger. again. Of course. You just keep of making course. it bigger. And it's actually part of the problem with tack- tackling this particular challenge is that you can't really make a scaled down model as a test. You yes. kind of have to build the At whole scale. goddamn thing. Right. So his math on this was if you wanted to capture this much of the market, you would need, and he's assuming each airship would carry about 500 tons each. Uh-huh. How many airships do you think you would need to do this in the year if you want to capture half of that maritime market? Just guesstimate orders of magnitude. 500 tons each. Seven. Uh, slightly more. If this was prices right, we'd be doing good because you'd okay, be under, I'm under. Not over. Yep, you're under. Uh, 25,000 airships. Wow. So now just think about this for a second. The gross weight of this thing would be over 1,000 tons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which would be 64% greater than uh the the an-225 you know do you know this plane no the antonov an-225 no unfortunately it was destroyed when russia invaded ukraine earlier in in 2022 but it's this giant monster there's only one of one uh-huh. and some spare parts they would use for flying around giant things yeah this thing would be much bigger than that right so proportionally you'd be 390 meters long and about 80 meters in diameter displacing over a million cubic meters of gas. Right, it's incredible. Air. It's it would be incredible. So this how, would be, how are you going to get that much helium? So you'd be fifty. Ah, we're going to get to that. You'd oh. be fifty-eight percent longer than the Hindenburg, and you'd have about five and a half times the lifting gas volume right. of the fucking right. Hindenburg. Right. So this is not a small dirigible. This thing is giant. Right. And I also appreciated that that one of the um, uh, engineers he had that sort of just worked on this rough math cheerfully noted that the fuselage of an Airbus A380, which is the world's largest passenger aircraft, right. would not be out of place as, quote, a gondola on this thing. Nice. Like, you could literally sure. use, it's only 73 meters long. Sure. You could put an A380 on the bottom to hold shit. Uh, that's how big this thing would be. <laughs> so, in order to make this work, and this is this is you know, just super interesting to me, if you look at helium, you've yeah. got a problem. I do? So, yeah, yeah, you got a couple problems with helium. So 25,000 airships would require about 26 billion cubic meters of helium. Okay. Our estimated global reserves of helium are around 40 billion, and we only produce about 160 million cubic meters per year. Well, currently, wait till we start using it for freight. So, well, the problem is it's also super expensive. Yeah. So hydrogen, just hear me out. Sure. Hydrogen can be be produced for about 1.5% of the cost of helium. Oh, I'm sure that's Super true. cheap, yeah. right? So his argument but is, a well... a modest little bit of static electricity and uh, well, you have a Hindenburg. Yeah, and this was the point that Eli made that I thought was really, really awesome. He said, well, look, early uh, you know, air travel, we had a lot of 
accidents. Yeah. We made it better. Now air travel is one of the safest ways to travel. We can do the same thing with airships. Like you, yeah. there's a way to make it. There's a way to discharge all that. that you can make this, you can make this work. And, the, and I think the problem with the Hindenburg, I'm not certain about this, but I think it was actually leaking. It wasn't just static. It was that one of the bladders was leaking. Had ripped. Yeah. Yeah. And inside the, cause it was like a, like a, like a, um, semi-rigid frame and it was leaking. And then that's what ultimately ignited. But presumably there's a path through that. You would need to get across that because if you can't, I don't think you make this work with helium. Right. You would need something like, um, I believe the number was $8 million worth of helium to fill one of these things as opposed to a well, couple hundred grand of That's going to offset your cost savings. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little. Um, but you've got other big challenges, right? You have to you have to load and unload this thing. And this is your, your helium balloon, or sorry, your hot air balloon analogy. Yeah. So you've got this thing that's full of, you know, 1.1 million cubic meters right. of gas what happens when you take some of that 500 tons of cargo out it goes up it wants to go up sure so this but is you, what you do is you float it over your house about 12 feet high and then drop the goods right you, on the lawn and then yeah and then you watch yeah. it shoot up into space sure just uh, just have that wily e. coyote thing turned on so you don't, don't squish my dog don't squish the dog no leave barkley he's got to snore his way through it um so it's some pretty interesting challenges that he brought up like how you're gonna load and load this thing like adding water ballast taking water ballast off removing gas well in the case of things like the hindenburg they actually had that was part of the problem yeah, if, if memory serves they had ropes yep and the ropes actually caused the discharge on the outside on the yeah and, and now you have a, a charged inside and you yeah. had static electricity but you're also have, you weren't unloading nearly as much weight no of course on this thing uh he also makes the argument to make these things autonomous because first of all why not because like, everything's going autonomous and why have room for the crew and all this just make it right. autonomous it's moving relatively speaking pretty slow um and he, he brought up a cool point of like, imagine what it would look like if you're like out, whatever, at Santa Monica Beach and you see this 400 meter long airship. Well, you'd see a lot just, of them. You'd it's see a lot of them, 25,000 yeah. of them. You'd see a lot of them coming in. There are some other challenges like um, because you're building this thing to fly to relatively low elevation. Yeah. Uh, you start having problems with like mountains. So tell me relatively low. What does that mean? Eh, 5,000 ish. Okay. Okay. Like you're, you're probably in that neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, so you start looking at mountain ranges that are greater than that. And you don't want to have to go over them. Right. That becomes, right. That becomes a challenge. Uh, so, but that's fine. If you look at the, the large trade routes, there are no, there's not a lot of mountains between here and Asia. Oceans. Yeah. Oceans. Yeah. Pretty flat. Which is all pretty close to sea level. Pretty close to sea level. Oh, that's actually, the, um, you get water that stacks on top of mountains that are under, like you get like like hundreds of feet of elevation change in the ocean. Did oh, you that's know that? cool. No. Well, yeah. I, know you, I know you get some just because of the, what, the earth is not actually a sphere. It's not a sphere. It's flat. Right. Well, no, it's <laughs> it's a fattened out sphere. My co-host thinks the Earth is flat, folks. <laughs> I'm completely fucked. Um, but I just thought this was really cool, like the idea of bringing back uh, airships. Sure. And he does bring up, you know, some realistic points that you, in order to get this to working in the U.S., you have to get the FAA across this, of course. And typically, any sort of new classification he estimated takes uh, billions of dollars, like a billion dollars, to get something new certified to the sure. FAA. He also made a very nice little footnote. It just doesn't when, when you when you follow the SBF. Uh-huh. Billion bucks is easy. It just doesn't sound like that much money. Sam could write a check for it. Sam could write a check. Totally. Well, it could have. <laughs> Need to get that money in August. Sure. From him and Tom before it all went tits up. Um, <laughs> but I love that he made this point. He said technically, the FAA says they only have authority over uh, uh, blimps, which are uh, like skin fabric and yeah. not not rigid um, rigid body craft. Yeah. But then he said, well, the reason they probably don't is because no one's tried to certify one in 80 years. Right. <laughs> no one's tried it hasn't to come up a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know how the ocean, uh, all those those seagoing uh, maritime delivery Boats. vessels, 
get boarded by pirates from time to time. Yeah. And get their, I want to see that in the air because I think pirates in the air would be way, Mission way, way more fun. 18. Yeah. Tom Cruise jumping into I think a that's way more interesting. Yeah, what do you, like, you put like autonomous sentry guns on them? What do you do? I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. Autonomous is different though because you can go hold the pilot hostage. There's no pilot. He's yeah. not changing course. It's like the, it's like the inflatable guy in the airplane. Just right, exactly. Just, exactly. Front, just smiling. I, that I, first of all, I think that's a really fun idea, and uh, I can't wait to see the, the skies darkened with dirigibles <laughs> delivering nonsense ever. and ads. Yes, don't forget ads. <laughs> ads Amazon's gonna put side. a giant ad on the side. <laughs> yep, hit the button. It says Prime Freight. <laughs> When the programmers at Amazon say they're 10 times more productive using AI, does that mean Amazon can fire 90% of them without consequence? First of all, they're not all the same. Yeah. Not like it's just a big pit of programmers. It's just a pit of programmers. And they're all working on the exact same same things. All, it's all hello it's world. All <laughs> How many just, ways can you say hello? One giant hello, Amazon. <laughs> just, just, buenas tardes. <laughs> You're like, all right, you just got the Spanish version down. It's hello world, and it's how not to set the package on the dog. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, the two things they do. Get the Wiley e. Coyote script working. When we apply AI and and automation to tasks, what happens to uh, the world economically? Do we end up with just a, a handful of families who have all the money, and who and and the rest of us have nothing because all the work is being done for us? Where does this go? Well, I don't know where it goes, but it sure does seem like. Uh, a bit of history can tell us a little bit yeah. about this. Like yeah. you've got the while well, the the well, let's just call it the AI revolution or whatever smarter people than me are calling it. Uh, it feels a lot you know similar to the technology revolution we've seen over the past fifty years. Yes, where like we robots can weld cars way better than humans can, faster, better welds, the whole thing. Sure, one hundred percent reliable every time. Like you said, yeah, faster, cheaper, yada yada yada. It seems like AI will be that times one or two or maybe three orders of magnitude more on things. Sure. Which is, I would generally think, a good thing. A right? great thing. Why sure. not have, if you can do it faster and better, why not? But then you, you... But you need somebody to program the AI. I mean, you need somebody to program the automation to do this specific task. With AI, you won't even need that programmer. Yeah, absolutely. Theoretically. You no, know, the AI will do it for yeah. us. Yeah. Um, but I guess what the harder your question is, what, like, what do the people that are being displaced by that. Right. What happens with all that economic displacement? What what I think is kind of fascinating. I'm taking, take this to the ultimate extreme. We have X amount of productivity in the world, right? Mm -hmm. We, we generate so many goods and services. What if all that can be replicated by pushing one button? Yeah, but we always, we will always do more, right? There's always room for more for us to do. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that we'll just become more efficient at it for sure. I think that that is all this is, is productivity. The number of amount yes. of productivity changes. Yes, yes. Obviously, if you have 25% productivity jump in the course of a year, you have an enormous amount of yeah. displacement. That's what I think is really fascinating is it's the rate. So you like look at like when we went from uh, you know farming to the sort of the industrial age. Like that happened over a generation or two. So you had it's a little, little more slower time than to that. I actually, I actually have numbers. A couple gener- Oh, yeah. you do. From, from uh, <laughs> In 1900, it took 84% of us to work on the farm to feed us. Right. Wow. By yeah. the time okay. we got to 2000, that number was less than 6%. I was going to say, yeah, like 5% of yeah. the population feeding. And, and so, you know. By the way, the population is probably 5x. What so what happened to all those people yeah. who were displaced? You, yeah. you could ask yourself, looking back at the time, you might have gone, well, if we have this much more efficiency, what are we going to do with all these extra people? 
airplanes. And the well, the answer to that is we always figure out something to do with yeah. the extra people. Yeah. No one saw the revolution coming of transportation of the automobile industry and all the people who would be required to make all that transportation, just as no one ever saw what was going to happen. This thing called websites. We were going to need a whole lot of people to start making websites. That probably goes away with AI, but we don't know what comes after that. Yeah. No, that's this is the futurist problem, right? I mean, a very small number of people will will guess correctly. Yeah. And they will become the Bill Gateses of the next generation. Yeah, Ray Kurzweil and his two good friends. What I'm fascinated by though still, I'm not thinking I don't think I'm making this point well, is like you've got this the generations are getting longer, but you still have like if you went to school for a thing, because you're not you don't have to plow the fields anymore. Right. So you went to school for a thing for a trade, you got the trade, you did your apprenticeship. You work that trade for 20, 30 years. Sure, sure. Like That's those not the case days now. are long gone. Right. Even in technology, you can't, there's no technology I can think of. Right. The skill I want to teach my son the most is it's how to teach himself to, how learn. to learn things. Right. Exactly. How to That's, learn things fast. You have to learn how to learn things quickly, right? right? But, when I was teaching him to code, uh -huh. I had this decision. It was very, very first starting out. I had this decision to make. Was I going to tabs like. Tabs or spaces. Was I, well, yes. Was what I going to choose? Was I going to rehearse tabs? Was I going to right. rehearse my coding in my mind so I didn't have to look anything up and I'd look like no. a genius? No. Or was I going to fumper around and, and go, oh, I have to Google that and see, remember how that done is done or whatever. And I decided the most valuable thing I could do for him was have him watch yeah. me go find the answer. The process, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, coding now is basically just uh, stack overflow curation. 100%. Just like go find the six posts that do what you want. Yeah. Take them together. Here's the thing. Also from, you know, NPM, I can I can pull down code that's been debugged 9,000 times that works great. Yeah, well, yeah, hopefully. And if not, somebody will fix it, right? That's yeah. the hope. Oh, sure. Yeah. I guess to get back to your, your your question, I feel like that's the speed at which stuff's going to change that we have to adapt is just going to continue to increase. You, you, like, you've got folks that are coming out saying, I want to be the best iOS developer in the world. And it's like, you can't. Right. Oh, yeah. That's going to change. Yeah. You can't just focus on, I'm going to be the best Swift guy right. on the planet. And then in five years time, you're like, oh, that's not a thing anymore. That's to me, that's sort of the more interesting part of this is like solve that problem. So retrain faster, learn faster so that you can be in front of whatever the, the, the problem of tomorrow is, which open AI does faster than all of us, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. sure. Do you do you think it listens to our show? Yes. We should ask it. Anyway, with all the displacement we've had, just think about the displacement we've had just in automation. So much has, has happened in the last 20 years in automation. Yeah. which is really inc incredible. Right now we have 3.5% unemployment, mm -hmm. which is insanely low. It's a, it's a half century low for unemployment. So obviously we find things for people to do. Mm -hmm. That's that's my point. I don't think, you know, with 10.5 million job openings currently, I don't think we're looking, gee, you know, let's let's dream up thinking something for all these idle people to do. Yeah, we I mean much like software and hardware, you make the chips faster, the software just consumes more of the hardware. Right. We'll figure we'll out something figure out. to do with There's, those people. Yeah, absolutely. They and, and they you know, in the turn of the century they were saying when when automation comes along, when more industrialization comes along, what will we do? Well, I'll have more time for vacationing. Well I'll, no, that actually proved to be much yeah. less true. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite actually. Exactly yeah. the opposite happened. We we got busier. So how do you how do you best encourage folks to embrace that or retrain? That's and not be a, you know, uh iOS programmer for life or yeah, coal learn, miner for learn life. to learn, learn to learn, right? That's it. Learn to learn. That's, that's your next major. I mean, if you want to be a useful yeah. major in college, masterclass in learning, learn, learn to learn. Yeah. yeah. And, but you know, and, and not to, to beat this, this horse even further, but even that's changing. 
like the way that you learn is changing. Oh, 100%. Right? Like talking about now people that are, uh, I'd read some some tweet recently about a guy who said he doesn't go to Stack Overflow anymore. He just goes to ChatGPT for the answer. Okay, next we're going to revisit and update some stories and themes from the past. Now hit the button. We're going to keep talking, folks. So we've talked about a lot of stuff on our inaugural four episodes. Yeah. And I think there's some cool things to just bring back up that tie some of these things together. Sure. Maybe loosely in a loose bow. Uh, one of my favorites that I found this week. Yes. There's a, uh, do you know the concept of, of explain it like I'm five? E-L-I-5. Have you ever heard this? It's a big Reddit I, I get thing. the idea. Yeah, yeah. So th- these guys put together a really cool caching GPT, chat GPT implementation of explain it like I'm five for all the things. So you just go to it and you just type in any it's topic like that you want. It's like Wikipedia, but yeah. except for explain it like i And you I'm get fine. a paragraph and it's great. Oh my gosh, I love that. It's really, really great. Uh, the link's in the in the comments for this. It's really awesome. So like, for example, for this episode, I put in Doomsday Clock. Yes. And it said the Doomsday Clock is a symbol to help remind people about how close we are to potential catastrophe. It is a visual representation of how close the world is to the possibility of a major disaster, such as nuclear war, climate change, global pandemic. The clock is set at various times throughout the year and closer to 12 o'clock, the closer we are to a potential global disaster. I don't understand why Steven Pinker can't understand that. It's so, it's <laughs> just it a metaphor. It's, it's so good, but you can just dump random things into this and it gives you two or three lines to sort of get you the gist of it. It's that's, really good. That's amazing. It's really amazing. And then, okay, so now going deeper down that rabbit hole, I think you already saw this. Realtors are using ChatGPT to write listings. Right, because you don't have to write all the copy yourself. Yeah, apparently one at the time. This is one of those things to me, like work from home, that everybody's so yeah. excited about work from yeah, home. Yeah. And the reality is, as soon as your company figures out that you don't need to come into the office to do your job, now they don't need to hire somebody in the United States. They can hire some, oh, sure. some engineer or person yeah, yeah. in Bangladesh who will I've work been for 10 them. years. Glo- wages have been completely globalized. I think that's what happened. I think yeah. that's a result and that's good. of that. That's a good, in my of course opinion, that's a good thing. thing. Of course yeah, yeah. that's a good thing. You want everybody to be yep. fully invested in this thing we call the globe. Yep. For realtors, I think what they're excited about, this thing generates copy. Well, yeah. Guess what? Yeah. Now your clients don't need you. Yeah. Because they well, can generate the same quality. Where, where copy are you adding value? You. I think that's, that becomes a question. Where are you adding value? Where yeah. are you Where are you genuinely adding value? And I actually. Are, and are you adding five percent value, which is what in California realtors are charging five or six yep, percent, whatever yep, it is. Yep. That's going to get harder and harder yep. to justify. Well, I also think you got a better chance of getting a more realistic listing from ChatGPT than a real agent. I think the ChatGPT I trust more uh, with that sort of robot overlord than than describing a four fifty square foot apartment as cozy, right? Or, right. Or you, the the you know my entire house is rot rotted wood studs and they're like it's a fixer upper. <laughs> well, I feel like it doesn't have the euphemisms yet. Yet I'm sure it'll get coming. there. I'm assuming coming. it'll get there. Uh, also AI. Um, this one was really cool. Coming into the courtroom. Lawyers, this is fantastic. This was this was an amazing story. Did you this see this week. in California? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because they were the bar associations were going ballistic. Oh my god, they're so pissed off. Yeah, they're so pissed off. By the way, and would I you rather why. have a real lawyer or would you rather have an AI lawyer? It's the difference between some lawyer who's done some nice nice research and studying, sure. and literally some lawyer who has access to all the research and learning. Yeah, I think the problem with that though, if I'm not so coy, is. Okay, so you get a couple of those. You don't really need two because they should, in theory, have the same answer. Right. Right? So now you have one, and now that becomes your legal system. You just ask the Oracle. You just ask the AI Oracle what's going to happen. Because it knows all legal precedent. Exactly. Right. Like, that 
That part is a little Orwellian scary to me. Just a touch. We're running out of things where the human has the advantage over the AI. This case in California was a guy like fighting a speeding ticket. And the, this company's plan was to have him wear smart glasses. Yeah. And, and it was going to record what was happening in the That courtroom. was actually how they got out of it. Because you're not allowed to record things. Exactly. Not all, which, which also seems mildly silly. Right. You can't record A little them. arcane. Uh, AI lawyers. That's a thing. Yeah. Um, and then... Wanted to revisit, or at least I think you and I should chat a little bit more yeah. about something we touched on a while ago, the uh, the Taylor Swift ticket debacle. And the problem is, how do you sell 3.5 million tickets in one instance with your computer without melting down your computer, sure. your, your database? Let me give my my, my standard um, uh, sort of uh, disclaimer here. I'm not a fan of Ticketmaster or Live Nation. I'm not a fan of I wasn't thinking you were. I'm not. However, this is really not an easy problem because you have... The positive case of folks that want to get tickets legitimately and one of them, but then you have oh bots, yes, all these bots, everyone right. else who's trying to crash the front door. That's a that's a hard problem to solve, right? right? And for the most part, I think the problem has been solved. It, it would not make sense for anyone, whether it's Ticketmaster or splitting up some entity, to build system to handle this kind of load at at any given time. Sure, right. So you need to have some scalability now. Where I think they really screwed up. Well, here's the problem though. Taylor Swift wants to be able to announce. She sold out her 3.5 million tickets in six seconds. Exactly. She wants to be able I get to that. have something to promote. And I think what they which did, which is was, completely I, understandable. Re, sorry, I, I actually read and, and linked here Ticketmaster's sort of postmortem on this. Yeah. And they were definitely what's the right word? You know, complicit or endorsing that. Hey, we can handle this. Yeah, no problem. Which they should have never said. Well, you know, you look at the numbers. They made some assumptions on who was going to show up based on the past, and clearly Taylor Swift right. fans do not perform like the other right. fan base. Like they're I, much I think more. It's, they, they pre-registered the Taylor Swift fans and they're used to like 40% of their pre-registered exactly. people actually showing up. And yeah, that's just not what and happens. And like 2X of that yeah. is what showed up. So there are plenty of great solutions to be able to, to do what we would call warm up, like warm up a bunch of systems so that when you go, hey, we're going to drop this stuff at 9 a.m. on Thursday, yeah. you're ready to go at 8 a.m. You've got all this extra equipment that's that's you know been sort of soft First allocated to and that. Bandwidth and, and that is something that I'm, I, I got to believe they're going to get in front of and solve. It's not a super fast solution, but they can get there within some short period of time. Then they've just got to stress test it. This, the simplest solution then would have been all the things we've talked about. So sell them off by venue, split up by yes, time, blah, yes. blah, 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 blah. But it there are, there are, the there are ways goal. to shard yeah. the database in ways that... Well, could, no, just just, just timing. Just have yeah. people, you know... Oh, well, they don't want to do it in timing because the know. artist wants to say we sold Save. out in six seconds. Yep, all at once, I, which I totally get. Yeah. yeah. Quickly, before you go, have you seen or read anything good this last week? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, the piece from uh, Eli Dorado on Substack, if yeah. you're like an aviation dork or if you like thinking about uh, new markets or startups... You should you should absolutely totally read it. I also love that uh, the name of the piece is "Cargo Airships Could Be Big." <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to recommend a show called "Shrinking on Apple TV." It's brought to you by the same people who made Ted Lasso. If you like that, you might love like this. Ted Lasso. Uh, Jason Segal and Harrison Ford. I saw the first two episodes. It is excellent. That's awesome. I'll check it out. That is the episode. Thank you for joining us for all this nonsense. A truly terrible podcast from the Awful Company. I'm CJ Little. I'm Jeff Parker. If you like this program, please follow, download, subscribe, and or like at Apple, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts from. Podcastindex.org. Special thanks to our floor director, Nathan Carlson. Thanks, Nathan. We'll be here every Wednesday morning for more nonsense. Please join us. <laughs> <laughs>